Hello, film lovers, and welcome to the Films I Love Most podcast. The Films I Love Most podcast is recorded live with live messaging. So sometimes people do message in with very inappropriate comments. We can't help that. It's just the general public. So if you hear something that is offensive or rude, we try our best to put a stop to it, but it might just sneak through. So I do apologize for that. But anyway, let's move on. Enjoy this episode of the Films I Love Most podcast. Hello, Keith Andrews. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, I can hear you. Oh, excellent. Yeah, sorry, a little bit of a stereo trouble there. That's okay. A bit of stereo issues, as they usually are, but we're here now. Hello, everybody. Here we are. Hello, everyone. Stereo mysteries. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm joking. I know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope so. You were like, oh, no. What's, what's he it's going to be pretty know? boring if you don't. Of course I do. Have you met me? I'm I'm on it, like a car bonnet, as they say. <laughs> How are you, Mr. Smitty? I'm doing well today. I am a little bit sleepy, um, but I'm having my coffee, and um, I'm very excited to um, to hear this story today. Oh, well, this is um, one of those stories that you read, and... It sort of takes a little bit of time to get around the story. It takes a little bit of time to get to know the characters. Now, I have to admit that my Russian isn't great. So I'm going to suffer some really dodgy, um, you know, uh, it's just going to be, there's going to be a lot of ofs and skis and a lot of things going on in today's chat that some of you might not uh, quite get the accent, but I'll try my best. There'll be lots of mispronunciations, uh, but I'll try. I have been practicing, yeah. I promise. We'll give you a pass on on that kind of stuff. We're, yeah. I'll hold I'll hold you. Um, I'll give you I'll give you much grace as far as the pronunciation uh, of the names that we'll hear today. Okay, that's good because I have uh, written them out phonically, and I also. <laughs> have, um, I've also uh, just going to stick when we get into the uh, the nitty gritty of everything. We're just going to stick to first names because n- no one has uh, the same first name. So I think that that will work nicely. That's perfect. Yeah, excellent. So, what do you know of the the Dyatlov Pass incident? Do you do you I know, know much? nothing? I know nothing, you know and zero? I <sighs> I and I intentionally did not look it up because I wanted to be surprised mm-hmm. by this story because I have so enjoyed. Uh, not knowing these stories that um, I didn't want to spoil it for myself. Absolutely. Well, I think that's wise because with the, the Atlov Pass incident, um, it's going to be a slightly different conversation because um, very, very, very recently, and when I say recently, I mean January of this year, 2021, uh, um, scientists and investigators think that they may have solved it. Oh, so they do. I'm obviously going to, yeah. So I thought mm-hmm. I'd give you a little bit of a tease to that. But um, we're going to dive headfirst into what the Dyatlov Pass incident is all about. And then just to tease you a little bit, 
um, yeah, there there are um, rumors and conversations that the uh, the incident has been explained. Oh, okay. So, okay, so the Dyatlov Pass incident. Here we go, guys. If you are a regular here on Stereo Mysteries, you will know that I won't be playing messages for a little while. Uh, we usually sort of um, have a conversation and then allow the messages to be played uh, sort of in the breaks and then at the end. So, um, yes. Okay. The Dyatlov Pass incident. So, um, basically, it was an event in which nine Russian hikers dived in the northern Oral Mountains between the 1st and 2nd of February 1959 in uncertain circumstances. Now, I think that word is really important. Uncertain. It's not an unexplained. It's not sort of um, unsolved. It's uncertain because there are lots of theories around what happened to them. And a lot of people subscribe to the one theory that we'll get to a little bit later. But uncertain circumstances is really important when it comes to uh, the Dyatlov Pass incidents. The experienced trekking group, who were all from the Oral Polytechnic Institute, had established a camp on the slopes of the Kolat Suzhkai, I've been practicing these, in an area <laughs> now named in honor of the group's leader, Igor Dyatlov. During the night, something caused them to cut their way out of their tents and flee the campsite whilst inadvertent, well, inaccurately dressed. So basically, they left the campsite, they cut themselves out of their tents, and they were naked. Um, oh. And they went into heavy snowfall and sub-zero temperatures. Now, after the group's bodies were discovered, an investigation by um, the Soviet authorities determined that the six had died from hypothermia, which the other three um, had been killed by physical trauma. Now, six died hypothermia, three physical trauma. And we're going to get into that very, very soon as well. Uh, just a little bit of a disclaimer. If also, if you... Um, listen regularly to stereo mysteries you know that i do give a little disclaimer before i talk about gross things like blood and guts and gore um i will be doing that uh, just to let you know and one is about to come up so one victim had a major skull damage two had severe chest trauma and another had a small crack in the skull so four of the bodies were found lying in running water in a creek and three of these had soft tissue damage to the head and was missing eyebrows. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, with one, um, two of the bodies were missing their eyes and one was missing their tongue. Oh, that's kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. Numerous theories have been put forward to account for the unexplained deaths, including animal attacks, hypothermia, avalanche, um, catabatic winds, uh, infrared uh, pan uh, induced panic, uh, military involvement, uh, and some combination of these um, different events that people think may have caused 
uh, this incident. So uh, Russia opened a new investigation into the incident in 2019 and the conclusions were presented in July 2020. But we're not going to go into that now. We're going to go. That's a little teaser for you to know, guys, that uh, at the end of this conversation, we will be talking about the uh, the July 2020 investigation and a study that was published in 2021 ha- thinks that they may have solved um, the mystery of the Dilyatlov Pass incident. But before we uh, go into how it was done, let's get some background into uh, the people that were involved. So in 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Orels, uh, which is in the oblast in the Soviet Union. According to documents that were found in the tent of the expedition, uh, suggests that the expedition was named for the 21st Congress for for the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and was possibly dispatched by the local, by a local organization and Igor Dyatlov, he was a 23-year-old radio engineering student who was part of the Oral Polytechnic Institute, uh, was sent out. And they, they believe that it was some kind of um, glory expedition for the uh, Soviet Union. Because you know what the Soviet okay. Union's like, Mrs. Smitty. They're just like, they like to go and do big, grand things, show off and... Uh, you know, take all the glory. And this was a really important expedition because it was um, out into the furthest reaches where not many people had um, hiked or have taken the route by foot. And I think that's really important to remember as well. So they wanted to be sort of the first ones. Yes, that's right. So Igor Dyatlov, um, he was the leader who assembled the group of the nine um, for the trip Uh, most of whom were fellow students and and peers of the university. And each member of the group, uh, which consisted of eight men and two women, uh, were experienced grade two hikers and and had ski tour experience. So these people were not, um, you know, amateurs. They were people that had a lot of qualifications in hiking and skiing and, you know, basically hiking across um, snowy wastes uh, and so this wasn't this had... wasn't their first journey into the the cold bleak mountainous terrain no this is Got it. okay very experienced people going out on this trip now okay. um so at the time um so they so the grade three uh certification uh for hiking and um skiing at the time was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union. And it required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers, which is 190 miles. So that's what they had to do to get the grade three uh, certification, which they which most of them had. Some of them had grade two, but some of them had grade three. 190 miles uh, they would have wow. had to uh, traverse in snowy conditions uh, to be able to get that grade. So that just shows you how experienced these people are. Right. So these are so, very experienced winter hikers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the route was designed by the Atlov's group to reach the far northern reaches of um, the Oblast and the upper streams 
of the Los, uh, of the Losbar River. And now the route was approved by the City Route Commission, and this was a division of the uh, of a committee of physical culture and sports. And they confirmed that the group of ten people on January the eighth, nineteen fifty nine. So this committee of physical and culture and sport were championing these uh, nine people to go out and do this amazing feat that no one had ever done. And we're highly publicising it, and not only publicising it, but also funding it as well. Okay. So this is Soviet Union, the physical uh, committee of physical culture and sport. Basically, um, we're holding these people up. We're holding this expedition up um, on a pedestal because they said that it's never been done before. And the goal of the expedition was actually to reach, and I, excuse my if I say this wrong, uh, the Otterton. Um, which is a mountain 10 kilometers, so 6.2 miles north of the site where the incident occurred. And this route, um, this route was undertaken in February, was estimated as a category three, the most difficult at the time to traverse. So the people that had their grade three, uh, this was sort of what they were used to um, tackling. But yeah, mm-hmm. this route that they were about to go on in in that February was estimated to be one of the most difficult um, to tra- to uh, traverse. Okay, so Any we know that they're so they're pre- they're prepared for this. Uh, they're experienced hikers. They know what they're getting themselves into. This is being well promoted uh, by their um, by their country and funded by their country. So I feel like you know, like I have faith in their ability to complete this mission based on what you've told me about them so far. They absolutely, these people are not amateurs. Like I said, they are um, very, very, very well versed in uh, the terrain. (laughs) They have um, the experience. They have the grading to go out, uh, which is why this is even more shocking because at the time, you know, these people were seen as the best of the best. If you think of it as, um, an olympic sport or olympians these people are at the top of their game right so um it it was very strange at the time uh obviously that these group this group of uh renowned you know hikers and skiers would come a cropper but it wasn't necessarily that um it wasn't necessarily the incident itself it's what happened to them and the bodies and the and the physical violence that was enacted on some of them, um, right. which I think really took the public, um, got the public's attention because it really is um, an horrific story, and we're going to get um, very much involved in the nitty gritty of it. Uh, just to let you know, guys, if you are interested, if you head over to my Instagram, uh, I put a post about this chat on today, and if you scroll across. Uh, there's also photos from the campsite, uh, which the um, skiers and hikers set up. And you can see um, what the investigators came across where um, when they found uh, the hikers and now, the ski. Shall I, shall I look at those now? Or will yeah, I think, if, I think, I think okay. you could look at them now. I think you'd be. I'm going to um, go ahead and take a look. I'm going to go through this next bit. So now we're going to in, I'm going to introduce you to the the group. So on um, the 23rd of January 1959, the Dyatlov group was issued their route book 
which listed the course as following the number five trail. And at the time, the City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport listed approval for 11 people. And the 11th person on the list was Simeon. I'm just going to use first names because the last names are beyond me, uh, who was um, previously certified to go with another expedition on a similar difficulty trip. Uh, The Dyatlov group left uh, Survesk City on the same day as they received their route books. So they've got their equipment. They've been given their route books. They're about to study those so they know exactly where they're going. So um, we're going to meet the team now. So we've got Igor Dyatlov, who was the leader of the expedition. Uh, He was 23 years old, which uh, I think is amazing. And yeah, so um, he died. I'm going to tell you how they died as well, just so um, we know where we stand. So Igor Dyatlov died from hypothermia. So then we have Yuri Doroshenko. He was 21 years old and he also died from hypothermia. And then we had Liv Damila uh, Dobanina, who was uh, female. She was 20 years old and she died from internal bleeding from severe chest trauma. And then we have Georgie. And this is the hardest one. So I do apologize Kai Ven Kenko. I've got it there. Um, I'm going to see okay. his first names from now on anyway. So that's Georgie. He was 23 years old and he died from hypothermia. We have Alexander uh, Kolventov, who was 24 and he died from hypothermia. We have Zin Ida, who was 22 and she also died from hypothermia. And then we have Rustim. Uh, Slow Bolden, who was 23 and he died from hypothermia also. Um, yes, and then uh, Nikolai uh, Brignols, who was 23 and he died from a fatal skull injury. Uh, we have Simeon, who was 38 years old, he was the oldest member of the team. I was gonna say, uh, they all are babies so far. Yeah, okay. he's 38, he died from a sh- um, severe chest trauma. And then we have Yuri uh, Yudin, who was 21. So he left the expedition on the 28th due to illness. So he didn't actually go and continue on with them up to the the, uh, um, to the pass. So um, he died on the 27th of April uh, 2013 at the age of 75. Wow. So uh, Yuri was, um, yeah, left the expedition literally four days before the team went missing so wow yeah yeah i mean he must have had some survivor's guilt i would imagine so now we know the team we've got uh we've got igor we've got yuri we've got ludamina we've got georgie we've got alexander we've got uh zinida we've got rustim uh and we've got nikolai and then and simeon um but yuri didn't go with them so Uh, Now we're going to get into the actual expedition itself. So the group arrived by train at uh, Livdell 
a town at the centre of the northern province of the Oblast in the early morning hours of the 25th of January 1959. And they took a truck to a Visay, um, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. So basically, once you go past Visay, there's nothing. It's there's too nothing. cold. It's too. It's the wilderness is too uh, bleak and bare. Um, so not a very nice place to, li- to live. So Visay is the height is the furthest that they can get. So while they spent the night at Visay, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. Because it's going to be a long one. Bless them. So on January the 27th, they began their trek um, toward Agora Orterton. Uh, on the January the 28th, one member, Yuri Ludin, uh, who suffered from severe health ailments, uh, including rheumatism. And a heart defect turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue with the hike. Um, the remaining nine hikers continued their trek. So that was the reason why Yuri had to um, had to go because of his uh, knee and joint pain. Which it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like Yuri really should have been going in the first place based on those. That's things. what I thought when I was reading up on mm-hmm. Yuri. I was like, OK, so why did he get to choose that to go in the first place? But I think it was um, I think it was more his experience rather than his ailments. So uh, they probably okay. thought that he'd had so much experience in the past that, you know, it was OK. But unfortunately, uh, or it, fortunately it for it. Yuri, perhaps. Well, fortunately, yeah. But uh, so the diaries and cameras found around the last campsite made it possible to track the group's routes up to the day um, preceding the incident. So on the 31st of January, the group arrived at the edge of the Highland area and began to prepare for climbing because obviously that was another um, task that they'd have to perform Um, in in the uh, wooded valley. um, They um, cached surplus food and equipment that would uh, be used for the trip back so they made a little store to make sure that on the way back they had supplies as well so they sort of uh, hid them in the wooded valley which is okay. uh, something that i don't think people did but obviously it's actually a really good way of doing it because if you're on the way back and you realize you're out of uh, you're out of snacks then you go kind of clever right because then you don't have to carry everything all the way up and back down if you leave it for yourself for the way back down then Absolutely. yeah you sort of make your trip easier mm-hmm. smart so that's the how ne- they got that's the next... how they got that level three right there see brain boxes <laughs> see, i would never afford yep. to do that i would have taken it all with me and probably eaten that's because the first night. we'd be humble level zero <laughs> is probably you and me <laughs> oh absolutely yeah I, I mean i yeah i don't think i'd be able to walk to the bottom of the garden without uh without <laughs> but they um but the next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. Um, it's And uh, also, um, just to let you know, guys, if you do go and look at those, I believe I did put a map on there as well. Mm-hmm. I believe there's you a did. map showing where, Dia- where the Diatlov Pass is. So if you yes. go on my Instagram, you can also see a map on there as well. So hikers started to move through the pass. It seemed they, um, they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions like snowstorms and uh, decreasing visibility, 
they lost the direction and deviated west uh, towards the top of uh, the Kolat Shwaki. Um, when they realised their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain rather than move um, like a mile downhill to the forested area that would have offered some shelter from the weather. But Yudin speculated, so this is Yuri, who um, who didn't who turned back. He speculated that Diatlov probably did not want to lose um, the altitude that they had gained. Uh, right. Or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. And this is a direct quote from Yuri Yudin. He said that Diatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude that they had gained or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like that this was um, one of the fund- fundamental mistakes that they made at this point. Was They not... took a wrong turn, and yeah. they decided instead of going back to sort of stay where they were. Yeah, to stay where they were and to practice, like they were saying, to practice um, camping, or, you know, maybe just, you know, trying to add another string to their bow by doing um, practicing something that many of them maybe not have had the chance to practice, you know, camping on a mountain slope. I mean, that'd be quite difficult to do that, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Um, and then and then that was it, Mrs. Smitty. That that was it. They were never that was the last um, known movements of the Diatlov team. Now, how long so, was it before people noticed that they something was wrong? Uh, we'll get into that. So before okay, cool. uh, leave, so before leaving, Diatlov had agreed that he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as they returned from Vizai. Um, it was expected that this would happen no later than about the 12th of February. But uh, Diatlov had told Yudin Yuri uh, before he departed from the group that he expected it to be longer than from the 12th of February. So when the 12th passed and no messages had been received, it, there was no immediate reaction because he had told um, Yuri that, you know, it could be later than that. So nobody started to panic after the 12th. Now, if you think about it, that's nearly two weeks. Right. That's two weeks or well, 10 days, but nearly two, nearly two weeks from uh from the last communication with yuri up to the point where there was still no messages that's two weeks um and as delays as delays for a few days were common with such such expeditions because obviously you know getting telegrams and messages to people when you're in the middle of nowhere it's quite difficult so they would have to send somebody or maybe come a lot come across somewhere where they could do that so on the 20th of february the, tra- the travellers' relatives demanded a rescue operation and the head of the institute sent one of the first rescue groups out. It was consisting of a volunteer, students and the teachers um, of, and basically friends and colleagues of the, of the hikers. Okay. So later, the army uh, forces became involved and planes and helicopters were ordered to join the operation. So on the 26th of February, so this, remember, they went missing like on the 1st, 2nd of February. So on the 26th of February, the searchers found the groups abandoned and damaged tent 
on a call at Swinski. Now, if you go um, and have a look at the uh, first picture, uh, which is on Instagram, the first picture is the discovery of what the tent looks like, uh, Mm -hmm. the campsite. So the campsite baffled the search party. Um, Mick Hale, uh, the student who found the tent, said that the tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators Their shoes, shoes, yeah, had been left behind. So investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks and a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed leading down to the edge of the nearby wood on the opposite side of the pass. Now, remember, this is where they were, where it would have been wise for them to have camped in the first place. Right. So, okay, so this is where that, this is where they should have gone back to. This is where they should have gone to, yeah. The wooded okay. area. But they didn't. But now that these uh, nine sets of footprints have been found, remember, wearing only one sock, a uh, single shoe, and some even barefoot... And they were and they were led down to the, the, the edge of the nearby wood on the opposite side of the pass. So um, that's that's near, that's a mile from where they were camped in their bare feet, in their bare feet. Ugh. So after our 500 meters, these tracks were covered with snow and at the edge of the forest edge uh, under a large Siberian pine the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. Okay. Okay. There were, there, that's where the first uh, two bodies were found. Yeah. So, um, and those are the people who died of hypothermia. Yes. So that is, it was um, Zadina and, and um, Georgie. uh, Zediana and Georgie that were found under uh, by this uh, fire okay and they both died of hypothermia they were were shoeless and dressed only in their underwear oh yeah the branches of the tree were broken up to five meters high suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something perhaps the camp but between uh-huh. the pine, between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, and that would have been um, Diatlov himself, Igor Diatlov, so the leader of the um, of the camp. It would have been sorry, Alexander, and the first Yuri, twenty-one-year-old Yuri. So they found them. Yeah, basically, uh, sorry, I've just got lost. So, oh, yes, they okay. found them between the pine and the camp. So, um, right. the, um, they, they died in poses that suggested they were attempting to return to the tent. And they were found in distances of 300 480 and 630 meters from the tree so they were actually going away from the tree to try go back to the towards the camp okay yeah so that was the distances so if you think that is 
980 foot, 1,570 foot, and then 2,070 foot apart from each other, they were found. So mm-hmm. it begs the question, did they split up? Uh, was their mindset like uh, what, um, like all for one and one for, like, you know, do you know what I mean? Like every man for himself? Or was right, or did mindset... like did like one set out and make it a certain distance, and then another one set out to try to find them and didn't quite make it far enough, etc. I wonder. Yeah. So is it that they were trying like desperately? Um, were they was hypothermia setting in? Uh, there is obviously reports um, about hypothermia that when you actually catch hypothermia, it feels like you're burning. So therefore, you actually take your clothes off. It doesn't feel like hypothermia doesn't feel like you're cold. It feels like you're hot. Mm-hmm. So therefore you actually um, take your clothes off when you, when you're, when you're in the um, sort of, you know, in the eye of the storm when it comes to hypothermia. So was that the reason why they were naked? We don't, right. it's, it's, uh, it's strange. So finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months Oh, wow. And uh, they were finally found on the 4th of May under four metres, which is 13 foot of snow, in a ravine 75 metres further into the woods from the pine tree. So three of the four were better dressed than the others. And there were signs that some clothing of those that had died first had been removed for use by others. Okay, so they were alive longer, presumably. And once the other people died, they took their clothing to keep warm. Yep. So uh, I, um, Eagle was wearing burnt, uh, was wearing burnt, torn trousers, and his left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. So I'm assuming that what had happened was they had. you know, after every person had died, then they would, were, were using their clothing. So But then, you know, we've just talked about hypothermia. People take their clothing off. These are people putting their clothing on. So these are the people that weren't suffering from necessarily hypothermia. But we'll go into that now because these are the people that um, were actually found with injuries. They had. These are the ones that had the mysterious injuries. Yes. So okay. um, a legal inquest started immediately after the five bodies were found and a medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths and it concluded that they had died from hypothermia so that's the first five bodies okay okay um one had a small crack in his skull but it was not um thought to be a fatal wound And an examination of the four bodies found in May shifted the narrative from the incident. Uh, Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. So one had major skull damage and two of them had major chest fractures. But according to Boris, and I'm just going to call him Boris because his last name is, is, I just can't. That's fine. The, the force required to cause such damage would have had to be extremely high, comparable to a car crash. 
Oh. Yeah. So nice how did this there. happen, Keith Andrew? Well, I really, I really hope I get to know. Okay. Okay. Well, notably, the bodies had no um, external wounds asso- associated with like bone fractures, um, mm-hmm. as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. So crushing, for example, like a tree being cr- like crushing you or something. So the um, the chest fractures, the head injuries were comparable to a car crash, but there was there was no pressure wounds. No broken bones or anything like that. Yeah. So all four bodies found at the bottom of the creek uh, in the in the running stream of water had soft tissue damage. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, guys. This is a warning. A warning. I'm about to graphic uh, graphic parts. Graphic stuff. Gross stuff. Um, yeah, had soft tissue damage uh, to their head and to their face. For example, um, one was missing uh, a tongue, eyes. A part of the lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of the skull bone, um, whilst other and um, somebody else had um, their eyeballs missing, and also their eyebrows. And the forensic expert performing the post mortem examination judged that these injuries happened post mortem due to the location of the bodies in the stream. So they were thinking that having a body being in the water for that long uh, and the extreme cold would have caused um, those injuries. Okay. Plus animals as well. I was going to say, wouldn't the animals get them at some point? Mm -hmm. So there was initial speculation that the indigenous Mansi people, reindeer herders from a local area, had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. Now, several Mansi were interrogated, but the investigation indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible, and they showed no signs of hand-to-hand struggle. Okay. So that was a very early um, theory that the Mansi people who lived in these areas... Um, were the people to have caused uh, the injuries but uh, all the evidence pointed away from that okay but although the although the temperature was temperature was very low so the temperatures were around okay so i can do them in in centigrade and fahrenheit you should be proud around (gasps) 25 to 30 um, celsius that's minus the minus 13 to minus 22 fahrenheit that was okay very cold with a storm blowing, um, the dead were only partially dressed. So some had um, only one shoe, while others wore only socks. Uh, and some were found wrapped in um, snips of ripped clothes and seemed, that seemed to have been cut away from the others, the dead. But journalists reporting on the, um, on the available parts of the inquest files claimed that it states... Okay, six people, six of the group members died of hypothermia and three from fatal injuries. There were no indications of any other people near Kholachki apart from the nine travellers. The tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. 
traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. Okay. Some, this is really, really interesting. Okay. And I think that this is probably the most interesting yet baffling point of this whole mystery. Are you ready, Mr. Smitty? I am ready. Some levels of radiation were found on the victim's clothing. Oh. So Is this aliens, Keith Andrew, or something like that? Wow, wow, wow. We'll see. To dispel wow, the wow, theory... Wow, okay. of- to dis- so to dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi people, uh, a policeman stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings. And, quote, oh. because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. So release documents contained no information about the, continu- um, the condition of the skier's internal organs. And last of all, uh, the file states, and I think this is pretty obvious, but the file states that there were no survivors. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So at the time, the official conclusion was that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force. That's what the inquest had said. The inquest official, uh, sorry, the inquest officially ceased in May 1959, as the result of the absence of a guilty party, and the files were sent to a secret archive. Okay. Okay. So we're getting mm-hmm. we're getting close. We're I'm getting not satisfied close. yet. Okay. All right. I know. I know. You're hanging not. in. <laughs> I'm hanging in. I know. I know. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to talk right. about All it right. at length. So okay, good. in 1997, it was revealed that the negatives from one of the campus cameras, from the, um, the hikers cameras, was kept in a private archive of one of the investigators, Lev Ivanov. The okay. film material was donated by Ivanov's daughter to the Dyatlov Foundation. The diaries of the hiking party fell into Russian public domain in 2009. So on the 12th of April 2018, um, some of the remains were exhumed on the initiative of journalists of a Russian tabloid newspaper whose name I'm not even going to also not even going to try because that's ridiculous. I mean, Russian names are just so bizarre. Con- yeah. um, contradictory results uh, were obtained. So one of the experts said that the character of the injuries resembled a person knocked down by a car. And the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. Okay. What I'm we confused. Thinking? The DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. Now, let's just think about that. They've dug up the bodies of the victims. They, the victims, the, the pathologist 
says that it looks like that these people have been in a car crash, yet they weren't. They were camping on a mountainside. But not only that, but now they're saying that the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. So did somebody swap them out? The bodies? Is that... I mean... This is my... I mean... Maybe. Oh, I'm so confused by this. So we know from the what you've told us already that uh, they didn't have car accident type injuries. They had internal injuries, but not really external injuries like that. Um, mm-hmm. And if their DNA doesn't match that of their relatives, then at some point did did something did they like switcheroo the bodies for different ones? And then where are the bodies of the people who really died up there? Or I, or I don't know. I'm so let's just go through the, let's just go through the facts that we have so far. Okay. Let's go through for those of you that are joining in late, we'll get caught up here. Yeah. I'm going to go back through and and list these things from the investigation. So, so far guys, if you're just joining us, this is what's happening so far. So nine people in 1959 went on a hiking trip through the, um, through a pass which has now been called the Dyatlov Pass uh, named after these group of hikers so um, they decided to camp on the mountainside instead of camping in a safer place um, in, in, or, like just outside of woodland and um, they were never heard of from again. Search parties went out to look for them, it took them a long time to find the um, to find the bodies, to find the campsite, to find the tent This is what we know. So six of the group members died from hypothermia. That's six out of the nine died from hypothermia and three from fatal injuries. There were no indications of any other people on the mountainside apart from those nine travelers. The tent was ripped open from within. So the tent on the campsite had been ripped open, not opened like you would normally do to a tent. You just open up the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the tent, wouldn't you? You like, just unzip it. it or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this, this, this tent wasn't, this tent was ripped open from the inside and the victims um, died six to eight hours after their last meal. So traces from the camp showed that all group members had left the campsite of their own accord on foot. And we have to remember here, when we say on foot, we mean on foot. Some of them weren't wearing shoes. Some of them weren't wearing socks. Some were just wearing socks. Some were bare feet. Like that, to me, is just crazy. In freezing, freezing, freezing temperatures, like below zero temperatures. Yeah, minus, yeah, minus 21 Fahrenheit. So this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about just like a breezy day. We're talking about near fatal. You know, you went out there. Oh, yeah. You'll freeze you, to death die. in a few minutes. Right. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is the one that we're still trying to, uh, to, to clamper with at the moment. But to um, some levels of radiation were found on one of the victim's clothes. And to dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi people, um, 
the um, the coroner stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by a human being because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft uh, no soft tissue had been damaged now um released documents contain no further information about the condition of the skiers internal organs and there were no survivors of this incident so we know that there um that everybody died Mm -hmm. you know there was there was nobody so that's the facts that we're um that we're dealing with at the moment so we're now coming into the part of the story uh that we've talked about but basically um in 2018 a uh, newspaper decided to uh, dig up the remains of the victims to um, to do their own investigation into what happened, basically. And they dug mm-hmm. up the victims and uh, and an expert said that the injuries had characteristics resembled a person being knocked down by a car. And the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. So basically, the people who were buried in the graves either, A, were not the people, were not the hikers, that somebody else had been buried in their grave instead, Mm -hmm. or B, something had happened to their bodies, i.e. radiation, or something had happened that made the dna analysis unreadable or un um, you know unmatchable i don't i'm not a scientist i don't know if dna can do that i don't know if extreme doses of dna can, uh, sorry of uh, radiation can cause uh, changes in dna or anything like that or if a body is exposed to radiation whether it um you know when it decomposes whether that sort of eradicates dna i'm not entirely sure but they could not match the DNA of the of the person that they had exhumed with any living relative. So I am addition, mighty puzzled, mighty puzzled by yeah, the DNA addition, part here, Keith Andrew. It turns out that one of the um, and I, it doesn't say which one. Unfortunately, I wish I'd knew. I couldn't find out who it was. But it turns out that one of the hikers' names was not on the list of those buried at the cemetery and this is one of the one of the um the hikers who had died uh, not from hypothermia but from injury um, okay it turns out that their name could not be found on any of the lists be- um of those that were buried at the cemetery nevertheless uh, the reconstruction of the face that was exhumed um of the exhumed skull matched uh post-war photographs of uh, the victim, although journalists expressed suspicions that another person um, may have been hiding under that person's name after World War II. Oh. Oh, this is also so, strange, Keith. Keith, and yeah. what is Yeah. So just to say Indeed, that again. Indeed, a so, mystery. Um, okay. Yes. So they, they reconstructed the face of the skull that had been exhumed and it matched the photographs of one of the victims. But although journalists expressed suspicions that another person was hiding under that victim's name after World War Two, So they think that the person who went on the hiking trip was not 
who they said they were. It was a person who had been had assumed their identity. <laughs> yes, after World War Two. Remember, this is only um, what, uh, nine years after World War Two. Uh huh. So um, maybe there was reasoning for that. Maybe they had to go into hiding. Maybe they were. Um, maybe they were German, and therefore they decided to uh, take on a Russian. Uh, name and persona so they could um, you know go under the radar because obviously Germans weren't exactly the most popular of people around in the uh, in the 50s right of course so in February 2019 Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident although only three possible explanations were being considered can you imagine can you just just uh, out of curiosity can you um guess um what those three explanations could be i can guess two so far uh okay we touched on we touched on this earlier that uh hypothermia makes you feel hot instead of cold so i think it's possible they were suffering from hypothermia uh and they Mm -hmm. ran from the tent um trying to escape the what they perceived as like the heat they were feeling this to me would explain uh why they uh, were not wearing their shoes. They weren't properly dressed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not sure about the injuries that the three of them sustained. Uh, that's still a puzzle to me. The second theory I'm coming up with is just aliens. <laughs> I'm really, I really aliens. don't know. This is a real head scratcher, Keith Andrew. Right. Well, the three explanations that were given were one, which I think is ridiculous. Are you ready for this one? All right, I'm a so ready. A hurricane. What? A hurricane. That was one of the suggestions that maybe um, a hurricane had caused this. Incident. I would encourage you all to look at Keith Andrews' Instagram and the map of where this place is. It doesn't really look like hurricanes hit there very often, um, if no, at all. not at all. So, not okay. at all. Um, an avalanche... Possibly. But why did we, but wouldn't they be buried in the snow? Exactly. Or uh, a slab avalanche. Now I did some research into this. So a slab avalanche, um, sorry, slab avalanches form frequently in snow that has been deposited or redeposited by the winds. They have the characteristic appearance of a block or a slab of snow cut out from it surrounded by fractures elements of slab avalanches include the following uh, crown fracture at the top of the start zone flank fr- uh, fractures on the sides of the start zones and a fracture at the bottom called a stanch wall the crown and flank fractures are vertical walls in the snow um, delining the snow um, that is and train into the... Uh, uh, this is all rubbish. This You don't need to know this, but this is too much. But basically, <laughs> I, I wrote a lot about it. But um, basically, right. they're saying that it's um, it's almost like it's not running snow. It's it's more like a slab that is that just literally comes... Sort of like slides down. And okay. falls, yeah. So that's basically what a slab avalanche is. And that's what they think this is. They think that it was maybe a slab avalanche. Now, if you think about that theory it doesn't match with what the pathologist said because he said that there was no pressure on the bodies 
So there were, um, you know, injuries to the skull. There were injuries, um, you know, to the ribs. But there, it was nothing that was of a pressure or a crushing nature, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So Right. And the, the folks who died of hypothermia about. didn't seem to have any perceptible injuries beyond that. So you would think that in an avalanche, they would have suffered some serious injuries. They would have broken bones or, or such. But also, what were they doing there in the first place? I and mean, why would why you? They, yeah, I mean, I don't. Tent? Exactly. That's why what I'm saying. Need... I don't think that you would have enough time to think, oh, there's an avalanche coming. Let's run and get out of the tent. It seems like this is like an almost instantaneous thing that when, by the time you realize it's happening, uh, you know, it's, it's already done. Exactly. I completely agree. I will urge, guys, if you are listening along, please do go to my Instagram. Uh, just hit my face. Follow the link to my Instagram. I have put pictures of the campsite, um, of the surroundings, and a map of where the Dyatlov Pass is, smack bang in the middle of Russia. And it just shows you uh, the remoteness of, you know, of where this mm-hmm. is taking place. It really is a remote area. There's nothing there. You know, these people were going out as part of a um, sports cultural event. Uh, They were highly, highly uh, experienced hikers and skiers. And this is what makes this so shocking. What happened to them? What happened to make them cut their way out of their tent, make their way down to a wooded area in their bare feet in minus 21 Fahrenheit temperatures. We, you know, what is happening here? You know, was it maybe that they thought they were being attacked? Did they think they hear, heard an animal? But was wouldn't there... you just stay in the tent? Wouldn't, aren't you safer in the tent than out in your bare feet in the freezing cold in the elements? This is the part yeah, I'm so there, puzzled maybe, by. Was there some infighting? Was there right. maybe some infighting uh, between them? Did a fight break out? Was there an argument? What happened in that tent to make them leave it, walk bare feet in those temperatures down to the wooded area where, where I must add, they should have been camping anyway? Right. And once they got there, they clearly, some of them, you know, attempted to like build a fire and things like that. So, um, so they didn't, you know, come down and, and straight away freeze to death, which is what I would kind of expect would happen. Absolutely. I'm so, I'm so puzzled by this, Keith Andrew. I really hope that this 2019 investigation uh, gives me some sort of answers, but I'm, I'm oh, afraid guys, it might yeah. not. Well, guys, there was a, there was a 20, um, 2020 investigation uh, and the some of the answers were made public in January this year, which is why I was really excited to do this chat. But we're going to get there, Mrs. Smitty. But the next okay. part All right. of this conversation is not only going to make your um, eyes water, but it's going to lend lend a little bit of ear to your theory. OK, here we go. So uh, 12-year-old Yuri, who later became the head of the Dyatlov Foundation, attended the five hikers' funerals, and he recalled that their skin was a deep brown tan. Huh. Okay. So that could, like, deep brown tan. 
that doesn't necessarily um, lend to the colour of someone whose baby been bloated in and in water. I'm not entirely sure um, what that's about. But what I will say is, obviously, that is not the usual colour of, of somebody who has passed away, you know, who has died. So um, right. um, another group of hikers, OK, who were 31 miles south of the incident. Are you ready, Mrs. Smitty? I am so ready, Keith Andrew. So ready. Reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky it's aliens <laughs> to the I north to the north of the of the night of the incident so similar the uh, spheres sorry were observed in uh, videl and adjacent areas con- um continually during the period from february to march 1959 and they were viewed. They were seen by independent witnesses, including the meteorology uh, service and the military. Now, these sightings were not noted in the 1959 investigation, and that the various witnesses came forward years later. Okay. So. Years, years later, the people came forward and hinted that this could possibly be a uh, an incident involving the uh, the paranormal so to speak or as we would say aliens i feel so vindicated because uh I, this makes me this makes me feel like like i'm good at this keith andrew <laughs> well, i sense that this might be aliens out. straight away yeah so um some researchers have um oh sorry sorry um so there's a guy called uh gretchen who summarized his research in a book called the price of state secrets is nine lives that was the name of the book The, the price of state secrets is nine lives so some researchers criticized uh this book uh for its concentration on the speculative theory of a Soviet secret weapon experiment. <gasps> but its publication led to public discussion, stimulated by the interest in the paranormal. Indeed, many of those um, who have remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the accident. One of them, who was a former police officer called Lev, Lev um, Ivanov, we have spoken about him before, who led the official inquest in 1959. In 1990, he published an article that included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. And he also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officers to discard the claim. Huh. Wait a second. <laughs> Are you okay? So per- perhaps not aliens. No. Okay. So basically when uh, Lev Ivanov, who was the, the investigator in charge, um, his team had reported to seeing these flying orange spheres 
But then he received the orders from high-ranking officials saying to, to, to dismiss them, dismiss that evidence, dismiss that theory. Okay. Because, you know, it, you can't go around talking about that. So are we talking aliens or are we talking Secret weapons. Yeah, secret, secret weapons. weapons experiments. That also yeah. sounds quite likely. Probably so more likely than the aliens, I guess. Sure. Oh, you were really hoping on aliens. I oh, I was so excited. I thought, oh, here I am. I'm a, I'm a mystery solving genius. Look at me. Watch me go. So right. um, in, in 2000, a regional uh, television company produced a documentary film called The Mystery of the Atlas Pass. And the film, um, with the help of a film crew, um, Anna Metyamba, uh, published a docudrama novella of the same name. And a large part of the book includes, I just want to make sure I get this right, includes broad quotations from the official case, diaries of the victims, interviews and searches that other documentaries collected by the filmmakers. So this is a film that was put together by a Russian uh, docu um, documentary maker. Um, I have tried to find this everywhere. I cannot find it. The Mystery Ooh. of the Atlov Pass from 2000. If anyone can send me a link or if it's anywhere, I've looked on YouTube, I can't find it anywhere. So the narrative line details the everyday life and thoughts of a um, a modern woman who basically she attempts to resolve the case. So basically it's it's written as a documentary, but it's also from a third person perspective. So Okay. Despite the fictional narrative, her book remains the largest source of documentary materials ever made available to the public about the accident, which is why this is important, because she did so much research on this and she wanted to make this uh, fictional narrative about what happened. But not only did she do that, but she went out and got the receipts. Okay. You know, so she basically said what you know could have happened this is what i think could have happened yes it was fictional because anything that we say about the diatlov pass incident is going to be fictional because we were not there and everyone who was there is dead right so we can't come up with um oh i know exactly how that happened oh i know exactly how that happened but we can try and this is where uh, we come to the um, to the possible explanation about what happened that night. Oh, I'm so ready for the possible explanation. Okay, guys, thank you so much uh, for listening to us. I hope you're enjoying this. I hope you're not too freaked out. Um, just close your eyes and I just want you to try and just transport yourself back to 1959. All right. Okay. In the, on the side of a mountain is a tent. It is absolutely blowing a gale outside. It's freezing cold, minus 21 Fahrenheit temperatures. You've hiked miles. You're so tired. You've, you've not eaten for six to eight hours previously. Something is going on. So January 1959. Nine young hikers, seven men and two women, 
trudged through the Russian snowy Ural Mountains towards a peak locally known as Dead Mountain. The hikers pitched their tents at the base of a small slope, and as the intense, intense blizzard chilled the night air to minus 19 degrees Fahrenheit, they never made it to the waypoint. Okay, I'm really building a, I'm really building this up because I want you to be you excited. Really so, you really are. You really are. I'm just going to summarize what we've discussed as well, just for our new listeners. So it took nearly a month for investigators to find all nine bodies scattered amid, amidst the snow. Trees and ravines of Dead Mountain, that's where they were found. Some of the hikers dead, half-dressed, just in their socks and long underwear. Others had broken bones and crushed, crushed skulls. Some were missing eyes. One young woman lost her tongue, possibly to hungry wildlife. Their Ugh. tent, half buried in the snow and apparently slashed open from the inside, still held some of the hikers' neatly folded clothes and half-eaten provisions. All nine hikers, and this is what they think happened, Mrs. Smee. Here we go. All nine hikers had died of hypothermia. After being asked into the cold under the influence of a compelling natural force, a Russian investigation concluded at the time that this is what, uh, what happened. But the specifics of the compelling force behind the now infamous Dyatlov Pass incident named for one of the hikers, Igor Dyatlov, as we already know, have long remained a mystery and given rise to one of the most enduring conspiracy theories in modern Russian history. Now, I'm reading directly from the article that was released about um, this January 2021 investigation. So everything from aliens to the invulnerable snowman have been implicated in the mystery. <laughs> I didn't even consider the abominable road. snowman. Yeah, where was the Yeti? Um, all these things have been implicate, implicated in the mystery since um, it rose to cultural prominence in the 1990s following a retired officer's account of the investigation. But now, a study published on Thursday, January the 28th, 2021, in the Nature Journal, Communications, Earth and Environment, provides the first scientific evidence behind much more banal hypothesis. Oh. A small, here we go, a small avalanche triggered under unusual conditions pummeled the hikers as they slept, then forced them to flee from their tent into the cold, dark night. So this is a quote from Johan Gulm, who is the head of the Avalanche Simulation Laboratory at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. Um, We do not claim to have solved the Dyatlov Pass incident as no one survived to tell the story, but we show the plausibility of how the avalanche hypothesis um, could have happened at the time. So 
The avalanche hypothesis is not new. Two federal Russian investigations completed in, two, in 2019 and 2020 also concluded that the hikers were most likely driven from their tents by a slab avalanche. Now, we've talked about slab avalanches. We know what they are. Sure. That is an avalanche that occurs when a slab of snow um, near the surface breaks away from a deeper layer of snow and it slides downhill in blocky chunks. However, this hypothesis hasn't been widely accepted by the public and the new and the new study noted because neither investigation offered a scientific ex- explanation uh, for some of the inc- um, some of the incident stranger details. So the slab avalanche theory was uh, criticized due to the four main counter arguments, i.e. the abominable snowman and aliens. (laughs) (laughs) I really didn't uh, consider the Yeti. Yes. Well, that poor Yeti never gets considered for anything. Always pick last. (laughs) Always Mm -hmm. pick last at gym. That poor thing. So uh, first and foremost, there were no sign of an avalanche when rescuers arrived at the campsite 26 days after the hikers went missing. There was, there was no sign of one. We, you know, that would have been one of the things that they would have talked about immediately was if there was any signs of an avalanche. But secondly, the slope where the hikers built their camp had an incline of less than 30 degrees, which is typically considered the minimum angle for an avalanche to occur. But okay. Guillaume said... Third, there's evidence that the hikers fled their tent in the middle of the night, meaning that the avalanche was triggered hours after the highest risk event when the campers built their camp. So uh, the process that involved cutting into the face of the slope to create a flat surface below their tent and the sheer wall of snow next to it, a common practice at the time, um, so they're thinking that it was actually um, the hikers when they built their camp that they instigated um, the the process to how the avalanche occurred. They, so they, they sort of directly. caused the avalanche on their own. Yeah, yeah. Ah, because remember, okay. they were they were practicing. They were practicing camping on a mountain's edge. Some of them were probably very experienced inexperienced at that. They may have been grade three. Um, like grade, you know, they may have been grade three hikers and skiers, right? But, but they at the weren't. Same time, they're not perfect campers, mm-hmm. especially not on the mountainside like this. No, no, exactly. Ah. Okay. So, um, finally, some of the hikers had sustained head and chest injuries that avalanches don't usually cause. But Guillaume said, and remember Guillaume is the guy who has uh, carried out this investigation. Mm -hmm. So uh, in their paper, Guillaume and the study co-author Alexandra Puzin, um, a researcher of the Institute of Geotechnical Engineering at Zurich, Switzerland, set out to address each of of the critiques. They studied reports from the time of the Dyatlov incident to recreate the environmental conditions that the hikers most likely faced on the night of their deaths, and then used a digital avalanche to model a test where a slab avalanche could have plausibly occurred 
under those conditions. The team's analysis showed that the avalanche hypothesis stands up to every counter argument. So in in their study, the researchers learned that the angle of the slope near the hikers camp was actually steeper than previous reports had indicated. And the slope angle measured about 28 degrees compared to the area's average slope angle of 23 degrees. So subsequent snowfalls in the weeks after the incident could have smoothed this angle, making the slope appear smaller while also covering signs of an avalanche, the team wrote. The detail um, took care of counter-argument number one. I'm still not convinced, because what about the injuries? uh, Yeah, it does get into this. So um, as for the second... While the 30 degrees is also considered the standard slope angle at which slab avalanches can occur, um, this is not a hard rule. Uh, the researchers wrote, in fact, that there's evidence of avalanches occurring on slopes with angles as little as 15 degrees. So a key okay. factor is the friction value between the upper slab level and the base layer. And the base of the snowpack on the Dyatlov campsite was composed of uh, a deep hoar or a or a sugar snow, you know that very light, grainy, crystallized ice that often occurs, sure. um, um, and it often increases the risks of avalanches. So uh, the grainy base layer could have easily helped facilitate a slab avalanche, even at a twenty-eight degree incline. So they're really struggling here. They're really like is trying to show that this has happened so um this leads to um the final counter argument the injuries yes some hikers were found with cracked ribs and skulls uh, injuries more in line with a car accident than an avalanche however the supposed slab avalanche at the outlove paths was far more far from typical rather than standing in the direct path of the avalanche the hikers who would have been laying flat on their backs as they slept the snow rushing down on top of them and over the small ledge um that that cut into the slope so the diet this is a quote from the uh, researchers the uh, dynamic avalanche simulation suggests that even a relatively small slab of snow could have led to severe but non-lethal thorax and skull injuries, as reported by the post-mortem examination. So the team models showed that under specific environmental conditions, a slab avalanche could have plausibly toppled onto the Dyatlov group as they slept, long after they cut into the slope to begin their camp. The crushing snow all but flattened their tent, cracking bones and forcing the hikers to hastily cut their way out of the tent, dragging their wounded comrades behind as they attempted to survive the night in open air. Sadly, none of them did. Hmm. What do you think, Mrs. Smitty? I was really excited when it was aliens. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's possible. I just expect that more of them would be injured. Like well, this wild, broken, this, broken this bones and things. Sure. I mean, you know, basically it's saying that because of the angle that they, they were laying in the tent and the avalanche fell on top of them, that could have caused the injuries. That could have caused the reason for them to exit the tent so quickly, i.e. not wearing their shoes and socks uh, and bare feet out in that cold. Um, and obviously then trying to get back to the tent uh, by that time, you know, um, the hypothermia had set in for a lot of them uh, and the others were suffering from their injuries. Okay, so because they were like lying down, they would have gotten the pressure injuries, like the 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 pressure on their chest and such without necessarily getting broken bones from it. Yeah, and the I guess, only I, thing, I, guess I buy that. The only thing that is a plus and against that for me is the picture of the tent. Yeah. Good point. So, so the picture of the tent, yes, that has been crushed, but no, it doesn't look like it's been. An, there's, it's an avalanche. Wouldn't there be like piles of snow on top of it? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. It's crazy. It's um, it's a strange one. But I'm, I'm just having a quick look myself. Yeah, I mean, there is like sort of snow on top of it. But it doesn't look like enough to have caused an injury to someone. You know, right. there's like snow that looks like. Um, I mean, looking at looking at the photo and guys, if any of you want to have a look at this photograph, you can go onto my Instagram. Uh, just click on Diatlov Pass incident and scroll along and you can see the picture. It shows the tent with snow on top of it. But look at that angle. How could an avalanche have come down that? such a short incline obviously we can't see behind the men and behind the photographer but it doesn't look like that, that incline is for a, for an avalanche to come down and hurt anybody does it it looks no, really it looks strange rather, pretty flat but um in conclusion mrs smithy uh while this paper does not explain every facet of the diatlov mystery it does prefer provide the first scientific proof that at least one popular hypothesis, the avalanche hypothesis, is plausible. And the authors conclude that um, the explanation may be far or less, uh, far from less exciting than aliens or yetis, but for Guillaume, the uh, banality of the avalanche hypothesis reinforces something really important, the human aspect of the catastrophe. And quote, when the hikers decided to go to the forest, they took care of their injured friends. No one was left behind. And Guillaume said, I think it is a great story of courage and friendship in the face of a brutal force of nature. Hmm. Well, I like that part of it. Mm -hmm. I'm also, I'm also kind of like, I'm puzzled by, the when they uh you know exhume the bodies and they didn't match the dna nobody's explained yeah, this part to me nothing further on research is about that literally was reported in that newspaper and then nothing else was ever reported about it again and nothing was ever mentioned about um the radiation in the clothing there's, right there's there's, there's, no, there's nothing here uh the lights in the sky 
you know, all of these sort of elements that are just word of mouth, then they're, they're not, um, they can't be proven. So therefore, if you can't prove something, then does it then need to be ruled out? I mean, this Guillaume uh, guy who's done this investigation seems to think that he has come up with the most plausible explanation. But you have to remember there there are those really strange things. Um, really, I mean, the lights in the sky, the radiation, the the DNA. The fact that their their skin the... was a sort of tanned brown, uh, tanned brown. as the one person said, um, that leads yeah. me that leads me to. Um, believe the theory that maybe this was some sort of like a, a weapons experiment a weapons testing thing gone wrong absolutely i mean what created the avalanche in the first place exactly could it have been caused by an, a, a weapon being tested because looking at right. the uh, the incline on that from that photograph it does not look like that snow could roll down that very easily in a well, way it doesn't look like it's as avalanche. covered Right, as covered in snow as I would expect to see in an avalanche. Um, and also, yeah, why does their DNA not match when their bodies are exhumed? Why doesn't it match their relatives? Exactly. All of these questions, unfortunately, I cannot answer. Even though I've tried, I've looked, I've researched, I've had a, had a look around. I don't go on any Russian websites in case I get bagged and that's all right keith andrew <laughs> so um in our previous episodes in jack the ripper and spring Hill jack you know i had no fear um of going deep dark into those mysteries but when it comes to weapons testing and radiation in the middle of uh, of russia uh, i'm not delving that deep mrs smitty <laughs> sure sure of course of course mind. i understand keith andrew there's a there's a limit to how far we'll take these investigations. There is a limit. I understand. Well, there that. you have it. That was um, oh. the Diatlov past incident. I laid out the mystery, um, and I've laid out a possible conclusion. For me personally, I don't buy it because there's so many elements that have left unanswered. Um, yes. And like a, like you said, from that photograph, it doesn't look like that that tent was hit with the pressure of an avalanche surely surely that tent wouldn't even still be in that position if it was hit i mean i know that this is what i think basically like huge chunks of ice being dislodged and falling but it doesn't look like there is enough to, to of that on there to have hurt nine people or right driven nine people out of that tent and into the wilderness this is also what i think now, I, I think I'll be doing a disservice to our listeners if I didn't uh, very, very quickly mention that there is a film called The Diatlov Pass Incident. It was direct, directed by Richard Donner, who directed uh, Die Hard 2. So that's <laughs> Die Hard 2. Quality film. Uh, Quality film. It's, it's trashy. It, it basically goes into the legend, but then turns it on its head and makes it a bit of a science fiction sort of fantasy horror movie which i didn't particularly like because i don't feel like it did justice to the um to the victims but if you do want to delve a little bit more into the diatlov pass incident and you're like a horror movie that's where you need to go um in any cases there is a lot of uh, online material that you can read 
there is a documentary out there, The Mystery of the Atlov Pass. I haven't been able to find it personally myself. Uh, but also there is um, a podcast called Dark Histories, uh, which uh, has a really good episode on the, the Atlov Pass also. So, yeah, that's mm. where you can go to further learn. I'm I'm still leaning really towards the weapons testing theory. And that then they swapped out yeah. their bodies and that's why the DNA didn't match it. Yeah, this is Russia. Mm-hmm. No offense to any yeah. Russians out there. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> don't come for Keith Andrew or me. Um, but no. he said it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think... Uh, I think that that, you know, that sort of leads me towards that conclusion that maybe they would have had a reason to sort of like keep the bodies to sort of study the effects of whatever secret weapon they were testing um, and that they they buried some other folks in their places um, and then closed the investigation and boom, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think that um, there is definitely something really fishy going on with the russian officials uh to the fact that one of the investigators was told um was told not to mention the lights in the sky yeah like was told basically not to uh to talk about that at all but um yeah very strange very 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 strange i'm just gonna go through see yeah it is a puzzle uh, but that's what we like here. At, um, I love at it. Stereo. Yes. It's, we do love. Now, I have another uh, mystery brewing uh, in <gasps> Ooh, my head. Okay. I have something that I think we could do. Okay. Uh, we have got, we have actually got, oh, oh, no, we don't. Oh. Hang on. I was going to oh. say we, oh, bear with me. Um, we had a couple of messages of from people. I've just been going through a couple. Here's one. Here's Ricky saying hello. Yo, yo, yo. Big up Keith Andrew 2020 and Miss Smitty. Just your boy Rich's reviews chiming in. Um, loving the show, people. Really loving the show. Um, I, I, seriously, I do look forward to this. So, yeah. God bless you both, man. And uh, hopefully see you lot soon. Take care. Bye. I'm still in here, by the way, listening in. <laughs> Cheers, Rish. Hello, Rishi. I also truly look forward to this show. Um, it's such a fun treat for me to have somebody tell me a sort of true crime or mystery type of story. Uh, as usually I am on the telling side of these stories. Um, it's such a, it's such a fun adventure and you tell the stories so well and keep me sort of uh, Aww, glued on the edge of my seat here uh, the whole way through. Well, do you know what? I absolutely love doing the research and learning the stories myself, because even though I did know sort of the basics of the Atlov Pass, uh, it was fascinating to go into it, especially with the new theories and, you know, learning about, um, I know this sounds quite grim, but learning about the actual injuries and about like things like the radiation, for example. So it was really interesting for the whole new sort of layer to the mystery to be opened up to me. So I thoroughly 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 enjoy this uh this show and um i do have uh like i said an idea of what i want the next uh episode to be so um obviously i'm not going to disclose it i always dis- disclose it to mrs smitty when i've made the trailer <laughs> <laughs> Which, that's fine that's fine with me and i i always uh i always fight the urge to 
to look up details of the stories uh, ahead of time because I do really enjoy uh, not knowing what's coming next. So for me, that is uh, that is part of the the fun is not knowing what's coming next. Now I'll ask you, Keith mm. Andrew, in your research, did you learn anything about the radiation that sort of influenced your opinion one way or the other? Sorry, say that again, Miss Smith. You broke up for a sec there. The radiation. I want to know about the radiation. Mm. What What did you learn from your research that like? you know, the, what's your understanding of like, is there a, a plausible explanation for why there was radiation found on one of the, the victims? There really isn't. There really, really isn't. It is pretty much um, something that was written in one of the investigation files, but never followed up. And it seems to be something that um, uh, theories and uh, like conspiracy theorists have really run with. But it seems to sure. maybe have been a discarded um, sort of one line in a report, but has been jumped on and has been spoken about because there is nothing else about the radiation. It is literally mentioned in one um, uh, coroner's uh, report that radiation was found on the clothing, on one person's clothing. I don't think I stressed that enough, but it was only just one person's clothing which radiation was found on. So how do you think that could have occurred? Right. How on one, but not the others. I'm puzzled by that. Yeah. I mean, it depends and who, why... on who it was. And now someone had described the, seeing the bodies afterwards and that their skin was sort of like tan brown. Um, what did you find out about that? Was there any sort of explanation for why that would have been? No, couldn't find anything. I know, I know, it's frustrating. I know, it, all mm -hmm. this information is out there. All these things that are in files that have, that weren't followed up, uh, you know, like especially with the radiation, the lights in the sky, you know, all of these things that you, you just cannot trace the, um, the the source, the core of this this information, which is the problem. You know, like Russia is such a secretive country, you know, to try and um, to even have any of this information. I'm actually quite surprised that we even know what the Atlog Pass incident is. Right. Well, and, you, you know, know like when we did this, when we did the story of uh, of Jack the Ripper and Spring Heel Jack, like those are older stories. So um, it's less surprising to me that it'd be hard to find some of those, you know, to really dig into some of those details. But this is relatively mm -hmm. recent. This isn't, you know, this isn't hundreds of years ago. So um, you would think that there would be, they'd have come up with explanations for some of this stuff. Or they did. Absolutely. And they just, they just are not willing to tell us. We just we what know I'm... that the, yeah, we know that the Russians are very secretive. They don't like to show their weaknesses. Uh, they don't, especially don't like to, to show off if they're, doing anything secretive with things like weapons uh, testing mm -hmm. and stuff like that so even if it was um something that was as covert as that i don't think we'll ever find out i don't think that, that the russians would ever allow that information to be um to be revealed we do have a couple of messages from people that are just making comments did you want to hear them we've got time Mrs. oh yeah i'd love to i'd love to i've got time yeah excellent hi guys big fan of both of you this almost sounds like an X-Files episode. Um, 
And I actually just waved goodbye to a Russian friend of mine. We just had dinner and he had not heard of this story before. But from the sound of it, I feel like there's some sort of paranoia involved, like maybe something in the tent, like some sort of insect or I don't know, some sort of substance that was dangerous that they spilled and they tried to get it off of them and it made them go completely cuckoo. I don't know. Oh, there we go. There's another hmm. theory. Interesting. Maybe it was a substance. Maybe something unearthed by by an by an avalanche, not necessarily an avalanche on top of them, but something that they maybe found that had been unearthed. Right. Very yeah, that's that's a solid theory. And Any theory. Maybe the substance. Get, guys... <clears throat> Go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say any theories you give guys, we will not laugh at because we we thought it was aliens all the, the whole time. I, <laughs> I fully thought, yeah, I thought I had it all figured out and it was aliens. <clears throat> Maybe the reason that only one of them had the radiation stuff on their clothing is because that was the person who touched the the mysterious substance that made them all sort of, you know, run from the tent. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's the core of the mystery for me. That is the me thing too. that really is the most um, the thing that stands out is the most why puzzling they leave bit. Tent. Yes. yes, why would they leave the safety and the warmth of a tent with nine people into the snow, no shoes on, and some of them just wearing their underwear? Well, and why are they in the tent it's, in their underwear if it's minus 20 degrees outside? I'm wondering. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I mean, nine people, that is quite a lot of uh, body warmth. <laughs> I'm bundled, you know, I'm bundled up in my warm jammies when it's like, you know, 40 degrees outside. So how are they in their unders um, in, you know, in sub-zero temperatures, even inside sure. a tent? This tent does not look particularly warm either. I must say. No. Again, I think maybe it goes towards experience. A lot of them have been in similar sort of situations before. So, okay. you know, I, I know that I know that you're saying that just experience doesn't mean that you're warm in your underpants, but they might have been wearing. <laughs> right. <laughs> they might have been wearing a lot of, uh, of clothing on top of that. Um, uh, yeah, that's yeah. fair. So, yeah, I hmm. think... Um, the experience, I think, is the key word to use there. That that they were having a lot of um, a lot of those people on there that were used to hiking, used to skiing, used to being out in these temperatures. I mean, they live in Russia for goodness' sake, you know, like really, really, really cold like place. So mm -hmm. I think that um, that's the that's the sort of um, thing you've got to think about. Is I guess I, I guess I used can buy that. to being in this climate. Right. So how how they act in that climate is uh so yeah not how i would act some... yeah no definitely not me either let's hit a ditty has anyone seen the hollywood film about this topic um very f hollywoodized and sci-fi i have not yeah. no that's the film i was talking about uh, directed by richard donner who directed die hard 2 um <laughs> and it's really it's really uh it it's not worth it, really. I wouldn't say it's worth it. I would say it's it's a fantastical sort of explanation to the mystery, but as, under no circumstances is it uh, accurate in any way, shape, or form. Any way, shape, Alrighty. or form. 
It's like a Hollywood yeah. Hollywood version. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they have to give it a little bit of a pajazz, don't they? Like for Hollywood. Yes. They can't just absolutely. have it as, you know, a mystery that doesn't have an ending. It definitely has an ending, the film. You know, it sort of explains it in its own way, but it's 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 crazy and it, it, it just it's not realistic. Is all. it like aliens or monsters or something? I imagine a Hollywood ending. Um, some sort of scary snow uh, monster or something like that. It's experiments, it's time travel. Uh, oh, it's got, man. It's got it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all right. I think that they, they could have told the story without having the Dyatlov Pass as part of the narrative. I did mm-hmm. find it a little, um, you know, insensitive, so to speak. But Got it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's hit a ditty, Missy. Can we all just state the obvious and like agree? There's no way that that was an avalanche. It just it, it doesn't add up. People don't lose their eyeballs. They're not gouged out by an avalanche. People don't. They're not ripped open. It'd be a massive blunt force trauma, yes, so maybe some cracked skulls. But you're not going to lose your eyeballs from that. It just doesn't add up. That's what I think, too. It don't add up, sis. Yeah, it doesn't add up. I mean, it doesn't. Um, we, we were talking a little bit about how that possibly could have been where uh, they were... Um, in the water for so long it could have been like marine life or it could have been animals you know how is the water not frozen yeah i mean i guess if it's flowing fast enough then that's how it stays it keeps from freezing if it is flowing water then it wouldn't have frozen over if it's like gushing water but um Mm -hmm. yeah i mean how do people lose like you know, um, eyeballs, their eyebrows, eyebrows. Um, I suppose Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if, um, hair when it's, um, exposed to extreme cold, I don't know whether that causes it to eyebrows to fall out or, but Mm -hmm. someone also had their tongue missing. Don't forget the tongue. Where did the, where did the tongue go? Where's the tongue? Right. Where's the tongue? Yeah. I believe it is the reptilians it's very common with attacks concerning them that I've heard in the past I don't know about the reptilians (laughs) I had to play that one because I I, I don't know anything about the reptilians please elaborate on the reptilians thing yeah I don't know anything about the reptilians I need to know more is this a QAnon thing? Reptilians? I don't know. I don't know. That everyone's, everyone's a reptile these days. <laughs> <laughs> the queen, I think your queen maybe is one that they think is a reptilian. Oh, Queen Elizabeth, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. Okay, let's hit the- Okay. Let's if it was an open cast, an open casket funeral, maybe the makeup artist got overzealous and tend their hides i don't know but it is kind of odd that the one had radiation and the dna doesn't match was anybody adopted does anybody know about that no hmm. uh the no 
the theory of why the DNA doesn't match the relatives now is because they believe that the person who was buried wasn't who they said they were. So on on the list, it said, um, you know, that it was this person. But again, when it matching their DNA, it wouldn't have been them because they think that they might have done a bit of a swapsy during World War Two, at the end of World War Two. So that is the common. Um, so it was just the one. It was that. just the one victim that the DNA didn't match for. Just the one victim, yeah. Okay. So All the right. One victim. They do. They do believe that it was a, a switch around. Okay. Maybe... I guess I can. I can accept that. I suppose. Yeah. Cool. Right, last message. Yeah, I'm still a Sasquatch type of guy. I really am a Sasquatch type of guy. <laughs> Rishi still <laughs> thinks it was Bigfoot. You think it was Bigfoot? Rishi, still... Rishi, Rishi thinks it's Bigfoot. Who am I what to argue think? with Rishi? What do you think, <laughs> Keith Andrew? What do I think? What do I think? Right. I personally personally think that there might have been something going on with the group. I think there might have been some tension. There might have been an argument. Maybe the um, the whole idea of them camping on the mountainside wasn't popular, but because the leader had said that that is what they were going to do, they had to go along with it. I think there was an argument. I think there might have been some infighting um going on in the tent i think they might have just it might have just blown up um i think they i i think that you know like when a fight starts and you just walk away didn't you? i think it might have got uh, a bit overheated i think people might have left the tent gone outside um and maybe that maybe i don't know this sounds really silly but maybe the tent wouldn't open maybe there was a problem with the tent or something that's why they had to cut themselves out and when immediately, as soon as they got outside, um, they hypothermia set in. And I think the the ones that went out uh, not clothed properly, it hit them straight away. I think hypothermia set in very, very quickly. I think they wandered off. I think the guys, uh, the three of them that had injuries, I think, I think that those injuries were caused by the actual fight that had happened inside the tent. I think that when the others had wa- had wandered off um, uh, into the into the snow, I think then the three who were fighting went after them, and I think that I that personally that's what I think happened. Okay, I can buy that. Yeah, and the reasoning still... for uh, the tongue and everything missing, I do believe that uh, that could have been uh, post mortem after death mm-hmm. i think that because remember they were there for a very long time like before oh, it was weeks was right weeks before they were found yeah. and months for some of them correct but the first second of february this happened they weren't found until may hmm. you know the, the three the three that had sustained injuries weren't found until may so therefore like you just don't know what what animals or what wildlife had been at the bodies at that point so right I, I that's that's what i think i think that there was tensions within the group i think it caused a fight i think people stormed out the tent didn't realize what they were doing they were then hit by the hypothermia 
I think once that hypothermia hit them, I think that they just completely lost their minds, which you would, wouldn't you? Like, oh yeah, totally. You, I think that just, out, I yeah, just a couple minutes out, in that sort of weather is going to like take you out. Yeah, really take you out, and I think that's honestly what happened. I think they wandered outside. The the weather hit them. They wandered. They started to go mad. Remember, we were talking about like the effects of hypothermia. Oh no, we didn't. Right. Didn't. Oh damn it! Did I miss a slide? <laughs> We talked about oh, we man. talked about how the hypothermia makes you feel warm instead of cold. Yes. Do you want to tell us about the other effects of hypothermia? So I'm gonna I well I was gonna say about like so mild hypothermia. So I I actually did miss a slide. I'm really sorry. I knew that I'd done some stuff on this. God damn it! So the symptoms <laughs> of mild hypothermia it can be quite vague. So um, so a sympathetic nervous system. Um, can it can create shivering, high blood pressure, high fast rate, fast respiratory rate, and contraction of the blood vessels. So these are all um, like psychological responses to um, to preserve heat. So increased urine production due to cold. So um, mental confusion and liver dysfunction can also uh, be present. That's in mild cases, Mrs. Smith. <laughs> and this would be like a severe so, um, case. So a severe case. Okay, so moderate. Um, as hypothermia progresses, uh, symptoms include mental status changes such as amnesia, confusion, slurred speech, um, decreased reflexes, and lost of fine motor skills, and severe severe hypothermia so as the temperature decreases further uh, psychological systems um, so physio physiological systems falter and the heart rate respiratory rate and blood pressure all decrease this results in an um, expected heart rate in the 30s at the temperature of um, 28 degrees so 82 fahrenheit so this these was so this results in an expected heart rate in the 30s at the temperature. So your heart rate drops to the the speed the heart rate of as if you were in the temperature of 82 Fahrenheit. Oh. Huh. So there is often cold, inflamed skin, hallucinations, lack of reflexes, fixed, dilated pupils, low blood pressure, um, um, and shivering. And shivering is often absent. So pulse and, and uh, respiration rates decrease significantly, uh, but fast heart rates uh, can also occur. Arterial fibrillation is not typically a concern in or of itself. So this is what we were saying. You know, your your body tricks itself into thinking that it's in like the 28 to 82 Fahrenheit temperature. So is that what causes you to take your clothes off? Because you Maybe. don't feel 
You don't feel the cold, but you feel the heat. So this could um, explain why uh, a lot of the uh, Dyatlov Pass uh, hikers were found with no clothes on in minus 21 Fahrenheit temperatures. But maybe they caught hypothermia, but they were just um, completely and utterly overtaken by the symptoms and therefore thought they were they were too hot so here we go here we go paradoxical undressing so 20 to 50 percent of hypothermia deaths are associated with paradoxical undressing this typically occurs when moderate uh, in moderate and severe hypothermia as the person becomes disorientated confused and combative that's a word that I hadn't seen before. Combative. So it's fight or flight, isn't it? They may mm. begin discarding their clothing, which in turn decreases the rate of heat loss. Rescuers who are trained in mountain survival techniques are taught to expect this. However, people who die from hypothermia in urban environments are sometimes incorrectly assumed to have been subjected to a sexual assault. Oh, because their clothes are missing. Yeah. One explanation uh-huh. of the side effect is a cold-induced malfunction of the hypothermis, uh, the part of the brain that regulates body temperature. Another explanation is that the muscles contract um, blood vessels become exhausted, known as a loss of uh, vascomotor tone, and relax, leading to a sudden surge of blood and heat to the extremities, causing a person to feel overheated. So this is 20 hmm. to 50% of people who have had hypothermia have died because of paradoxical undressing. Oh, that's so strange. That was so an important slide. Why? I'm glad we got back to it. Yeah, me too. Sorry, I completely not only missed. Oh, that no out. worries about that one. Um, no, no worries at all. But um, yeah, I think that hmm. I think that holds the key. I think paradoxical undressing holds the key of why they died and why they were found with no clothes on. Right. Why they were okay running outside in no shoes. Because two of them had made a fire, remember, and those were the two that mm-hmm. were found dead. The, t- the first two people found dead were only wearing their underwear. Huh. In minus, to stress again, minus 21 degrees Fahrenheit, only wearing their underwear. It has wow. to be paradoxical undressing. You would think, yeah. <clears throat> if I can't think of another reason. 50- no, if it's 20 to 50% of people that die from hypothermia associated with paradoxical undressing, you've got, um, you've got six people that died from hypothermia on that trip and two of them are undressed. That statistically plays out in my mind that that is what happened. Yeah, I guess, I guess to me as well, this is a more plausible explanation for sure than the aliens. Yeah. Yep. So um, I still think maybe yeah. this is some sort of sneaky 
this is maybe some sort of a sneaky weapons thing still. Um, I'm not convinced that it's not, but uh, I suppose I can go with this paradoxical undressing also. Yeah. Them One of guys, those two. Probably not aliens. No, not aliens, not the Invulnerable Snowman. I honestly, like I said earlier, my theory is honestly that there was conflict within the team. Uh, people fled uh, a fight or maybe the fight, the combative um, sort of behaviour was caused by the hypothermia. I'm not entirely sure, mm-hmm. but it caused them to flee the tent as soon as they left outside. Um, that's when they got, when the cold took hold of them. And that's what we, um, that's unfortunately led to their um, to their demise. But the avalanche uh, theory just doesn't hold enough for me because of the pictures mm-hmm. if they didn't have those photos yeah. i would probably be like okay that's fair but because of that we we have that uh pictorial evidence i just don't think that that tent was uh was crushed by an avalanche it just doesn't make sense this was not at all such a good story you enjoyed it Oh my gosh, so much. This was quite an adventure that you've taken me on. Um, and I have um, I have made theories and new theories and I am still probably going to be thinking of new ones uh, well after we close <laughs> today. Um, and Absolutely. I will probably be messing, messaging you and saying, well, what about this? What about that? <laughs> well, what I really like about this episode was that we got, um, we've taken ourselves out of the comfort of victorian london and we're now in the deep dark 1950s russia which i think in some ways makes the mystery and the story a little bit more scary because it is in an environment that we we have no connection to and we don't understand you know we don't understand why people would choose to go out into the middle of nowhere in the mountains in minus 21 degrees Fahrenheit weather and hike and camp, that to us is not something that we do as people because of where we live. Right. So particularly me um, in Southern California. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And even though, you know, people have sort of misguided perceptions of British weather, it's never been below 21 (laughs) minus 21. I can guarantee you that. Because if it had, I would, I'd, I'd still be hibernating. <laughs> I wouldn't have left the house. You could, you could, but, you uh, could run over here to Southern California and hang out with us where it's nice and warm. Oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah, but yes, um, yes Mrs. Smitty, that was the Diatlov Pass incident, uh, and um, I have got um, something really, really cool for our next uh, stereo mystery. But you'll find out what that is when I send you the trailer. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Okay. Excellent. So amazing. There we go. Keith well, Andrew, thank you very much for everyone who's listened. Yes, and thank you, Keith Andrew, for, for uh, bringing me another fantastic uh, mystery. Um, again, this is, this is a talk that I so look forward to uh, because these are, always, these are always such great stories that you tell, and you tell them in, in such an, an artful uh, fashion that uh it's just Thank it's you. non-stop fun for me oh that's i really appreciate that that's lovely that's what we do it for isn't it to have fun be informative and just 
you know, things like this really uh, excuse the excuse the uh, the phrase tickle my pickle just because uh, there's just something really sort of there's something really fascinating and really uh, engaging about a mystery that is just beyond your realms of understanding. Mm-hmm. Do you know? You know, like you were saying about that you will sit and you will think about it and you will, it will be like in your mind for the rest of the night. But that's what I love about these mysteries. I love the fact that you'll be thinking about it. I love the fact that some of our listeners may have heard, you know, um, about a story that they've never heard of before, but now will go onto the internet and research it, maybe watch a film, a documentary, read a book. You know, that's what uh, life is all about, the, the, the hunt, the search for knowledge and Oh, believe me, I, I'm I'm enjoying this as much as anybody, hundred percent. I'm so glad. Excellent. Well, I'm going to do a shameless plug if you don't mind, Mrs. Smitty. But oh, I'm do sure it, you won't do it, do it, Keith, do it. Yeah, because the shame, shameless plug is involving you anyway. So, um, if you've enjoyed <laughs> this, uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation uh, with me and Mrs. Smitty today, uh, we are live tomorrow at six p.m. GMT, which is five p.m. Eastern Standard time no i forgot that wrong 6 p.m gmt 1 p.m eastern standard time which makes it 10 a.m 10 a.m for me oh i'm getting good at this and it's america 101 yes it is america 101 and tomorrow we're going to be asking the age-old question is the constitution still relevant And I will have much to bring to this discussion. Super duper. I cannot wait. It's one of my favorite shows of the week. Uh, I always learn so much, uh, even though after that QAnon episode we did, um, I'm, I'm seeing things <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I'm scared. But, you have to um, kind of wash your you brain, so wash your brain thoroughly after listening to all that stuff. Um, oh, yeah. Thank double you. rinse. Thank you. Double rinse. Definitely. Thank you so much, my dear. I, um I'm going to go and make I will a s- uh, cup of tea. And uh, guys, don't have nightmares. Remember, um, if you are feeling a bit on edge like me right now, I'm going straight over to Disney Plus to watch the Aristocats. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants to be a That's cat. Right, um, Everybody wants to be a wonderful. cat. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Keith Andrew. Thank- I'm going to scarf down some lunch and then um, get back on uh, stereo in about 30 minutes time, I think. So, um, yeah. And I will see you, my dear, tomorrow. I will see you tomorrow. Thank you very much, Mrs. Smitty. Thank you, Keith Andrew. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Films I Love Most podcast live. Don't forget, you can get involved on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to send us an email with any suggestions or recommendations, you can send those to filmilovemostpodcast at yahoo.com. Thank you very much. And I hope that you join us next time here at the Films I Love Most podcast. (laughs) 